welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Molly O'Brien. And Introducing. Well, I don't really know this time. Uh, we're usually a podcast in which uh, Molly O'Brien here reads me a story of music, uh, memoir, or history. Yeah. Um, and that is the case again today, but usually I'm aware of what our subject is before we get started. And today, I'm going in blind. It's a mystery. Uh, we're flying in solo in that only one person has the map, and that person is Molly. I has the map. It's my map. My map. My map. We're going we're gonna to talk about... an. As yet unknown male person, I, a mailman. A mailman. Yeah. A mailman. Mail Who is it? Turned, <laughs> I'm not Tell me say. now. Please paint me a word picture. This guy is born April 7th, 1948. He's the first male grandchild in a matriarchal Italian family, which he says bestows one with an anointed position from birth. So going back two generations, it's all women. Yes, uh, or at least the women seem to be the ones who are running the show. Okay, great. In this Italian fam. Um, his, this guy's first regular musical gig is singing in his Uncle Joe's basement in Bergenfield, New Jersey. He says, our big family would gather on Sunday afternoons, the long plastic-covered table overflowing with antipasti, lasagna, or macaroni with meatballs and sausage. Okay, so he's living in uh, The Sopranos. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Uh, but his his family lives in New York, um, and he's got oh, like, but Uncle Jersey. Joe's is out in Jersey. Yeah, you got to go out to Jersey for the antipasti. Okay, so he's a new he's a a New York boy. Yeah, a New, New York, York boy with Jersey Jersey tentacles. Yes, um, and of course, you know, Showtime is is dessert in this, uh, and I assume there's also tiramisu or something. And the cannolis, cannolis, yeah. Um, his family moves to a tiny uh, suburb of Philadelphia, which is full of Amish people. It's back in 1952. Um, he yeah, takes big, big Amish Quaker country down there. Yeah, a lot of a lot good, of buggies, a lot of horses. Good place to get some furniture. <laughs> Great place to get furniture. Or also methamphetamines. Mm, maybe not so much back in the day, but now I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to take a lot of meth in order to have the energy to make all that furniture. Yes. That's how it works, right? Meth in barns. That's the Amish way. <laughs> um, he he's like a musical kid. He takes accordion lessons um, from the town's like accordion maestro. Um, but he longs to play rock and roll. His rock and roll epiphany occurred when he watched Bill Haley of of Rock Around the Clock fame perform sure. live. Bill Haley and the Comets, right? Yes, and all of those those little comets streaking across the sky. Um, and then also he saw Elvis's screen debut in Love Me Tender, and he was like, "Rock and roll is cool." I just want to say that uh, the accordion thing, you know, has my mind spinning about guessing who this might be. Uh, but I think there is a precisely crossover of one person between accordionist. And pop music person, and that person is Weird Al Yankovic. I and I don't know if in this game we're playing if I can say whom it is. If I can say whom it is, but I do not think yes. that uh, Weird Al has a memoir. Uh, I would hope that he would. Um, He's but, a book that Nathan Rabin co-wrote with him, but I don't think it's a memoir. I think it's more of like a career history type thing. Mm, mm, uh, mm. But Weird Al is uh, is 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 very good. Um, he. Sings well as a child, and his mom is a bit of a stage mother. Thank you. Um, rock and roll. Uh, his mom is a bit of a stage mother. She pushes him to perform at such opportunities as the annual donkey baseball game and an actual minstrel show. Oh, my God. Wait, into um, the 50s? Wait, look. A lot of stuff going on there. Yes. Please tell me that the donkey baseball show is what I imagine it is. Uh, I mean, I think it's... He did not explain what a donkey baseball game is. I mean, you're... Imagine what I am, which is a bunch of uh, donkeys with uh, uh, bats, uh, you know, 
kind of mounted to their snouts, running around uh, a field, right? I'm gonna... Uh, oh my god, yeah. The pitcher, catcher, and batter are men, and all the other players are on donkeys. As soon as you hit the ball, you jump on a donkey and you run You run the bases. This is an amazing sport. Why do we still not have this? This is the kind of Animal abuse. <laughs> Wait, is there like a heading in the Wikipedia that just says animal abuse? Can you imagine the injuries that probably occur to these poor donks? They do horse races. That's yeah, still allowed. But there's not flying polo. There is polo and flying balls and running horses. Yes. But we it's all not nice. Why can't we just, I'm just let them saying chill? That this is the kind of innovation in sports technology that this country has stopped producing since that era. We've settled into our big three or four, trying to maybe wedge soccer in there. It constantly not happening. Yeah. All I'm saying is to get people interested in soccer, put these guys on donks. Donkey soccer. Yes. Donker. The LA Galaxy. Get those boys on donkeys. <laughs> I'd go to that show. Come on. You know, I think donkeys are definitely bred as a hardier, like, yeah. uh, steed, so fine. They're perfect for contact sports. Yeah. As opposed, to, as, a, as opposed to a more delicate horse. I would hope that the donkeys get to wear Pads. helmets, though. Yeah, at least helmets. Can you imagine? Because once a donkey, donkey gets conked like full, in the noggin, it's all over. And, like, full shoulder pads? Um, a little number on its sides? Oh, Donkeys are, I actually think donkeys are cute. They have amazing eyelashes. Uh, yeah, and a low-key minstrel show, because what the actual fuck. Yeah. Um, he, do- he doesn't really comment on that, except to be like, yeah, that was weird. Um, and I, I don't really support that or appreciate it. <laughs> weird weird memes from the Jersey childhood. Weird memes. Um, so near the end of ninth grade, he joins a band uh, called the Avalons. They play like 50s and early 60s style R&B. This is the kind of the band where everyone wears like the matching shiny suits. Um, and does the little like in tandem the sh- dance the moves and, yeah. and stuff. The shoops and the bops. I feel like, uh, you know, Haley in the comments, the Avalons. I feel like these types of like late 50s uh, doo-wop names all have that specific genre. Do you know what you would name your doo-wop group? Well, it's about, I feel like all of those names sound like um, like the things you would name like grand apartment buildings. Yes. Like same same difference. So the, like you could name the a Saratoga. Group, the Dakotas. Yeah, the exactly. The yeah. the the Chonsenheimers. The Chonsenheimers. Oh no, that's bad. That doesn't really flow. <laughs> Chris Wade and the Stately Arms. <laughs> I mean that would sounds like a band from like the like three or four years ago trying to do like a throwback garage rock thing. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um you you know, you get one one yeah. car commercial for the Toyota Rav four and then yeah, your yeah. life is made and then we never hear from you again. Except yes. for getting nominated for, you know, the Grammy for yeah, rock album. For best new artist yeah. five years after your first album came out. Yeah. They love those guitars. Um so they gig around uh, like Philly and the surrounding area regularly enough to be making decent money by the time he graduates high school. So Hell it sounds yeah. like they had a little successful thing going on. A lot of you know, a lot of school dances, a lot of a lot of you know, quinceaneras or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, he moves on to a group called the Masters. So he's at this point he sings and he plays guitar, Great. and he writes songs. He's a songwriter as well. Uh, he graduates. He goes to Temple University. Uh, meanwhile, attending shows at Philly's Uptown Theater. So The Temptations, James Brown, Otis Redding. Um, he says of this experience, the harmonies were transcendent. The energy was propulsive. This was my church and the religion that took hold of me, shook me, saturated my soul. So now he's a uh, a young man, a university age uh, Italian guy hanging out and mostly like black R&B mm-hmm. areas. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, he, uh, th- this is his like style of writing is it's very fervor, fervorlicious. Yeah, it sounds... A lot um, of hyperbole. Yeah, it sounds uh, um, 
uplifting is that the right the right word he feels a lot praising it's a little purple but like in a in a pleasing way um this reminds me already of the origin story of hall and oats have i told this one oh my gosh have i guessed it have i guessed it already So he's in the Masters. Uh, okay. <laughs> he gets the opportunity to perform for a radio station along with several other groups, including one called the Temptones, the Temptones. which were sort of like a Temptations-esque band. A gang-related gunfight breaks out uh, while the performances are going on. This guy hustles into a service elevator and meets the lead singer of the Temptones and his future musical collaborator, Daryl Hall. Daryl Hall. So this is John Oates' memoir. Oh, nice amazing. job. That's actually, I didn't think you were going to get it until uh, I mentioned the, you know, this opportunity. Good, good shit. Well, I have, I, we've talked, have I said that story before to you? I think so. That story of them cow- meeting each other cowering from the same gun gunshot. Mm-hmm. Like it's not that many uh, amazing origin stories that begin with a good group cowering. Yes. Uh, especially like, I mean, for me, I did not, I picked up this book and I did not expect, I didn't know how old John Oates is or was. Um, I didn't know how old he was when they were in their prime as Holland Oates. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize he was born so early. They had an entire career before the eighties. The eighties were just the pinnacle of their career. Yeah. They recorded through the entire seventies. Yeah. Because they were like a soul act. They're coming out of a. This like soul movement. They have a long musical evolution, Mm -hmm. which we will dig into. Um, but John, John Oates, man, <laughs> the temp tones, the temp tones, w- what's big right now? The temptations. Mm-hmm. So we are the, uh, temp tones, the temp workers, <laughs> the, t- the temp temptations, the, te- the temp temperaments. Uh, <laughs> that's actually not a bad band name. The temperaments. So, uh, they meet and they kind of, you know, they sniff each other out or like cool that we didn't die in this <laughs> like gang shootout at a. Like it wasn't even a concert; it was like a radio station event where you we like uh, it was like a, a lips, talent audition, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, basically just to like uh, stake your claim amongst because you know in Philly in the sixties, uh, teenage like I think he basically says in this that he thinks that Philadelphia invented teenagers, like huh. teen culture came from Philly, which sounds like sure. somebody who was a teenager in Philly's yeah. in the sixties, uh, right. I just, uh, I just love like. So, uh, you ever been shot at before? No. You ever been shot at before? No. You want to go get some burgers and talk about music? Okay. <laughs> I like your band. You got a cool look. Yeah. Uh, so they Tom get Tom's to- a, a little derivative though, right? Hey, shut up, man. <laughs> Fuck you. Um, John, John gets to know Daryl. Uh, this is in 1968, so it's like a few years before they officially mm-hmm. start recording together. Twenty year olds. Uh, at this Twenty point. year olds. They, uh, you know, a bunch of late 60s stuff happens, like the moon landing. Uh, <laughs> John Oates has taken. So I, I think I should take the opportunity to say, like, this is not a Hall and Oates memoir. This is John's memoir. And there's a lot of shit in here that has nothing to do with his recording career. It's He's his just life. and I think, you know, we can ask this question at the end of the recording of like it, maybe all, all of these from now on of like, does this person deserve to have a memoir beyond writing hit songs? And I think we're going to answer it yes, because he has a very interesting life. Okay, great. And he just has a lot of feelings. So the moon landing happens. He's on mushrooms. He says During the moon landing? Yeah, during the moon landing. Interesting. Also, early hit for uh, mushrooms. I feel like that came in vogue maybe a little a little after the moon landing, but that's... 
Sounds like a great a great drug to be doing. He said all I could do is bounce off the walls, deliriously repeating over and over, he's walking on the fucking moon. I don't know how that wasn't the entire world's uh, reaction. Right. That. That's the, I think that's an appropriate reaction on hallucinogens or no. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, I mean, what? I just kind of imagine all the like uh, uh, square bespectacled 60s dads just like, you know, knees crossed holding over, open the paper, just nodding and going, hmm, walked on the moon, huh? <laughs> the Russians are at it again, huh? Um, so he he was a, a soulster, but he starts getting like folkier in his music and his presentation. He's got long hair, so he turns into like this acoustic hippie guy, mm-hmm. um, and starts getting more into like learning the the art of the guitar and whatnot. And he says, "My personal journey of musical enlightenment was about to blossom." Um, but first, he graduates from college. He misses the draft. Um, I wouldn't even think that Hall and Oates had to like worry about the draft, but he um, has too many like minor physical problems to, <laughs> to join. But he was excited about he failed that. failed his cowering exam. Right. Um, he goes on like a Euro trip. So he sees the Grand Prix um, because he loves car racing. More on that later. Um, he gets dysentery after eating some weird meat at a hippie camp in Spain on the beach. Whomst among us. Yeah. He experiences the bleak end of the world dystopia of Christiania, which is a um, neighborhood, uh, not neighborhood, I guess it's its own sovereign territory as a part of Copenhagen and Denmark. We've been to Christiania. It is kind of a bleak end of the world dystopia. It kind of looks like um, Children of Men, Mm. but with a more party vibe. Or like um, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, but colder. Yes. And a little more quaint. Yes. And not so many people dependent on a despotic warlord for water. Not as many people. Not as many people. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, they, I don't know what the origins of Christianity were other than people wanted to declare. Like they, they declare themselves separate from the European Union. You can buy drugs pretty openly, openly although yeah. not necessarily legally. I'm not really sure like of the legalness. But it's place. The thing about Christianity that really bogged my, boggled my mind is that it's like this so he's visiting it in like 1969. Yes. It's been there for at least a half century. This like neighborhood that declares itself independent of the rules of Copenhagen, Denmark, and indeed the European Union. Yeah. And nobody really fucks with it in that way. So it's basically a free sovereign neighborhood. It also doesn't let you like take pictures. They don't want you to bring cameras at all. Drug market. And yeah. I assume also some other kinds of illegal activities. But the thing that really surprised me about it is that the like drug culture there is visually and culturally indistinguishable than the drug culture of like a freshman's dorm room yeah. where it's like Bob Marley posters and like Bart Simpson smoking a joint bootleg yes. image imagery. It's like the worldwide uh, hom- homogeneity of drug culture is yeah. always baffling to me. And it's always the tackiest culture possible. Yes. It is the Spencer's gifts aesthetic slash yes, like, but just with like weed leaves on everything. It's kind of like, you know, if you're traveling the world and you find like a, like a Dunkin Donuts or like a, a McDonald's or something to remind you of, of home, at least in the branding, it's like all head shops are exactly alike. Yes. <laughs> you can go to like a head shop in Thailand or on St. Mark's place yeah. or in Austin right. or like wherever. And you're going to find, you know, grateful dead bears, grateful dead bears, you know, whatever p- current pop culture thing. You're pro- like probably like Kylo Ren photoshopped mm. to like be smoking a huge joint with like Bob Marley dreads on him. Yeah. Because it's like all the same shit over and over. Anthropomorphized I mean, weed leafs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, 
uh, chalk it up to global capitalism ruining everything, but mm-hmm. it seems that no place is uh, free from the, the squashing hand of this tacky global weed culture. Yes. Yes. Good. Well, well stated, sir. <laughs> uh, anyway, so he, he doesn't like Christiania, and then as he's coming back, um, he somehow thinks it's a great idea to bring a big chunk of hash with him from Amsterdam, sure. um, but then he gets pulled into a security line to get searched, and he has to swallow the whole thing. <laughs> and then he he took he got like a very discount ticket to fly transatlantically back home mm-hmm. and, to New York, um, but it's like a tiny tiny plane from like twenty years ago, mm-hmm. and he's like meanwhile like freaking out on this hash and like just trying not to die. And then it turns out the plane ticket to New York is actually just to Buffalo, so he has to hitchhike back because he has no money. Just like extremely dysfunctional. <laughs> what? You're in New York? What do you? <laughs> <laughs> we said New York. <laughs> there was a you didn't specify city or state. Yeah, yeah. Um, he also talked at one point about like trying to meet up with people from college and the only way to do it was to go to the American Express office in any city and literally write a message on like a bulletin board <laughs> and be like, hey, Francine, I'm in uh, London right now. Like maybe you want to meet up. Here's my hostel or my garret or whatever. Yeah, it's the uh, equivalent. It's the 1969 equivalent of dropping a pin. Right. I, 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 that, that like travel anecdotes, those kind of blew my mind because I feel like people are super spoiled these days with their Airbnbs and their internet. Well, everywhere. I mean, things like change, but it is mind boggling to even imagine planning going to a movie with somebody <laughs> in like, I don't know, 1999. Yes. Yeah. And I'm sure, like, some older listeners might be like, ah, oh, you kids are, are spoiled. But that's just the way the world works, man. Things change, and you, we lose tools that we used to have and get new tools. Yep. But Mostly still, just a phone. It's a, a very rapid change. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy, man. How did you go to a movie in the 90s? You I had mean, to leave a message on somebody's message machine saying, I will be someplace four days from now at X time and you yeah. would just expect them to be there? That's what they. That's what you did. That's madness. That's what I did all the time. At this point, I don't expect people to show up for plans that I've arranged with them until I have visual contact of them <laughs> in the place where the plan is. Or at least a text from them saying that, like, not like, okay, I'm heading out in five minutes. No, that means they haven't left yet. Yes. You need to have them be like, I'm on the train. I'm on the train. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a world we live in. Yes. The kids these days. Anyway. Back in Philly, uh, John and Daryl decide to officially musically partner. They choose the name. They make it official. They make it a fish. Uh, their band name is Whole Oats <laughs> because Daryl's original name is Whole, H-H-O-H-L. <laughs> so they And they just spell it like, you know, whole wheat, whole oats. Whole, how freaking wholesome is That's that? It's very crunchy. I'm so also very glad that the band's so name isn't Whole and Oats. Yeah, Whole and Oats. <laughs> Whole Oats. I think they do a couple records as Whole Oats um, before Daryl changes his name to Hall, which... Hey, guys, I hope you're having a really special night out there tonight. We're going to play a few uh, standards for you guys. Uh, We're the Oats Hole. (laughs) Come and uh, shovel your old oats right in. Shovel those oats, baby. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so they're like gigging around. They're writing songs together. They somehow get a young Italian upstart named Tommy Matola to become their manager. Are you oh, familiar yeah, with great. the name Tommy Matola? Yes, I've heard that name before, but already it immediately sounds like we're transitioning into a, a, a Scorsese movie. Tommy Matola, what hey, do you want? Hey, you got you, you guys singing good? Yeah, I got a, I got some clubs. I know some guys. Um, they signed to Atlantic Records in 1971. Uh, 
I didn't. What are you playing right now? What is I'm it? playing off of the album Whole Oats. Oh, hell yeah. Get it. This is a song called Lazy Man. Thank you. So it's very, like, it's very soft, smushy. Lazy man, does life pass you by? Why you don't even try to grab hold of a minute? It's good. It's, it's good great. Though. They've got great voices, both mm-hmm. of them. And, like, really kind of classic songwriting skills. Mm-hmm. Just, like, first chorus, first chorus, maybe a solo. What's your latest excuse? Sort of Billy Jolie. This but actually, maybe before Billy Joel was a thing. Yeah. You can hear songs like this on like early Queen records and stuff. Or like Elton John. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty standard, it's, but nice. It's good, but uh, I would say not remarkable. But you know, this yeah. is just one, a sample size of one song off their, their earliest albums. But this is off the album. Whole Oats. Whole Oats. So they were already signed to a different like local Philly label. And but the guy was like super sketchy and he would do things like they would be in like a room in the office building writing songs together. And the guy would pop his head in and be like, sounds like a hit, boys. And then he would take a songwriting credit because he literally like stuck his head in the room. And so they literally they hired they heard someone else who was unhappy with that label, hired a goon to pull a gun on the the manager of the record label and have him, like, release him from his contract. So they did the same thing. They hired, like, a thick, uh, like, creep to come and threaten to beat this guy up. And I think he he did beat him up a little bit, and then they ran away. But they somehow got released from their old, like, bogus record contract, which sounds like a thing that happens a lot in the... Yeah, I'm just times. glad that I am just glad that uh, gang violence features so prominently in the Hollow Notes story Often. because it really is reflected in their music, you know. Yeah, well, like I think it's the like the Philly in them, really. <laughs> but it is like you. I do feel like you hear a lot of this in in like these kind of doo-wop bands where the music is like shoo up, shoo up. I just want to love on you, <laughs> and then the behind the scenes is like, oh yeah, we had to like knife six people to get the deal to get put that mm-hmm. right record mm-hmm. out. Totally. Um, so they signed to Atlantic, uh, and they hit the road as an opening act. Uh, they opened for Bowie pretty early on. Sounds like a fucking good show to me. Just super in like chill. 19, in the early 70s. Early 70s, Hell yeah. Yes. Um, meanwhile, Tommy does things like give the two of them um, parkas for the, they moved to New York. Uh, they give them parkas for the cold NYC winter, and then they he sticks his hands in the pocket, and there are just rolls of cash. <laughs> and that's like their present. Um <laughs> Tommy's like a little sugar daddy, basically, and like really enjoys hooking it up with them, like gift wise. Great. Uh, the first song that they write together that really gels uh, is "She's Gone." Ooh, classic. And he says, "Like manna from heaven, the lyrics manifested themselves as we pool our collective emotions." <laughs> He's a really like romantic guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that this really book is dreamy. written. Uh, with like the uh, earnest emotionality that is behind like all of their lyrics. So, do, do they talk at all about how the uh, music versus songwriting goes down at this time? It sounds very collaborative, but also they will write things on their own and like bring them to the table, and then the other one will like write lyrics. Mm-hmm. It sounds pretty, pretty. Um, oh, it's the dream to have coll- a, 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 a like true one to one creative collaborator. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a very special thing, and like when people. You know, get in those those engines. It's uh, those grooves with somebody else. It's really uh, produces special things. Yes. 
and often like consistently special things. And it never really sounds like uh, Oates is like jealous of Hall. Like it always sounds like a pretty solid partnership, unless there's like things he's, he's avoiding to say. But in terms of like who gets to sing what, <laughs> or can't legally say. Yeah, maybe that too. I mean, this is great. But it almost sounds like a parody song of like songs from this era. Like what that uh, the Lonely Island yeah. could cover this kind of thing. But it's plain to say that they can comfort me. But I think that's just yeah. I think that that's just the praise for how perfectly of its of its time is that it's like the epitome of that sound. Um, in a really clear way. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the defining things about Hall Notes is that they're like uh, incredibly merch, like commercial. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in, but in a way that's like so perfectly emblematic of what the music trends are at any single time. They're they're both. Just got distracted by the guitar. This is great. They're, they're both so emblematic of the time that that. It's like something that almost sounds instantly cliched, even though yes. that is the thing that that is there. Right. Like if it's a, if it's possible to be cliched in a good way. Yes, I think that's right. Because you're just the absolute right thing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's great. I love it. It's like definitely like it's very soft. Mm-hmm. But uh, so they record. Like songs like this, they record the album "Abandoned Luncheonette." Yes, that's off the 1973 album. "Abandoned uh, Luncheonette" has a, a the album cover is the two of them standing in front of an abandoned luncheonette. The titular abandoned luncheonette. The titular abandoned luncheonette. Apparently, people once they once they hit it big, people went to this luncheonette and were just like prying parts <laughs> and taking like little bits of it, like it was the freaking Berlin Wall. <laughs> um, insanity. And it's now gone. They, it's it's been slowly she's, dismantled. She, by she's gone. Is, is actually about the, <laughs> the abandoned luncheonette. luncheonette. <laughs> it's been. Although, if you write an album about an abandoned luncheonette, is it truly abandoned? I guess not. <laughs> it's going deep. Anyway, they start kind of pushing their their folky sensibility. They use um, like the mellotron mm-hmm. uh, and also an ARP. 2600 synthesizer. Oh, you know how I feel about ARPs. How do you feel about them? They're I brought, great. I put this in the notes because I know you're a synth boy. Yes. Uh, the ARP is uh, one of those legendary <laughs> early synths. It's a huge, uh, uh, like console like thing. It is the sound that the saxophone makes at the end of Suffragette City. So that when and now now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. second here you can kind of hear it in the background there you go uh bowie picked that because he uh wanted that sax part to do that that kind of like 50s throwback thing and no sax would sound dirty enough so he uh eventually turned to the arp i don't i just can't find a saxophone that's dirty enough isn't there one dan saxophone that can (laughs) make me feel like a dirty boy just rough it up put some dirt in the saxophone david it's as dirty as we can get it i can't dirty this i can't play it any dirtier we'll have to use unorthodox music (laughs) 
<laughs> he's like a like a Bond villain or something. Yes, but he would have been a great Bond villain. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I I think it's dope that he uh, they're playing this. The ARP twenty six hundred was invented in nineteen seventy one, and they were playing it on their record that they recorded in like nineteen seventy two. Yeah, they got the they got their thumb on the pulse. Those boys. Yeah. Well, again, like all their songs are like exactly what the production we'll get more yes. of this in the 80s um so one of john's faves from abandoned luncheonette is the song laughing boy which is just daryl on grand piano accompanied by flugelhorn uh let's listen to a little <laughs> bit of that it is a flugelhorn laughing boy guitar john is playing the blues this does sound a lot like elton john yeah <laughs> Don't it make you want to cry? They have great voices. Yeah. You know I can't imagine. I don't know the difference uh, between Hall and Oates' voices. <laughs> well, maybe we'll figure it out by the end of this. Okay. It's like. You hate the world, but you can't live alone. They're very like Elton John, but Elton John is like. Ten percent statelier in his melody lines. Mm-hmm. They go a little more like wild and silly, and more, more like, like riff. You know, yeah, a little more. Yeah. And I like to tell you <laughs> that I think your laugh's alive. We gotta hold out for that flugelhorn. Yeah, where's the freaking flugelhorn? Where's the freaking flugelhorn, man? That's you laying in the meadow. You gotta. You, Look, you just gotta wait for the flugelhorn to kick in on this one, man. He's like, it's like there, and then you get that flugelhorn in the mix, and like, mm, and then it's, it, mm, that's, that, when it mm, oh. that's when it hits. <laughs> I mean, I feel like these songs are just very, very song, yeah. like song with a capital S. Like, yes. it's just, it's not like, oh, what if we just played like some random notes for a couple minutes? It's like, no, this needs to be a freaking song. I feel like I'm not expressing this correctly, yeah, yeah. but. Yeah, well, it's like one of the song songs where like no two lines are the same. Like even when it gets back to the chorus, he's singing it like each time increasingly emotional, yeah. emotionally. You know, it tells a story. Can we try to skip forward and see if this flugelhorn ever comes? Pass the time No. Is Oates lying to us? I'm your friend that knows. That's not a flugelhorn. That's a violin. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Ooh. Smooth. Very smooth. All right. I was satisfied by the fluke. Thank you. Anyway, um, the boys uh, record another album. No hits yet. They record another album, War Babies, which they go like much more proggy for, it sounds like. Is this their political um, album? Still no big hits yet. Uh, and then their their first big hit in 1976 is Sarah Smile. And then Rich Girl follows shortly afterwards. So we're getting into that girl talk sampling territory. Amazing. Uh, real quick, uh, <laughs> you can tell that this is their prog album on War Babies because mm-hmm. you have t- track titles like... Uh, I'm watching you, brackets, a mutant romance. Yeah, yeah. War baby, son of Zorro. Yeah, exactly. BDG and the rose tattoo. Oh my god. Let's do a hair of 70s scenario. 
honestly, I do love Hollow Notes and I also do love Prague. So realizing that they have a Prague-ier album might make this suddenly my favorite. Uh-oh. Uh, Uh-oh. It's their first charting album, apparently. By the TV light, things really ain't that tough. As long as I'm still able to turn the TV on. Does he have the range? He might. It's cool. I mean, there's obviously these aren't like their hits yet, but there's still a lot of stuff going on in there. You can tell that there's like a yeah. attention to production. Yes. In addition to their beautiful voices. Todd Rundgren produced this one. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's almost like Forner-ish. Yeah, like, yeah, like the changes in the, the tempo and I get it. Oh, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> it's pretty dope. I'm not going to lie. This is indeed a 70s scenario. This is <laughs> the most 70s scenario. The song did not lie. It is delivering exactly what it promised. Yeah. See, again, every single thing they do is like exactly right. They're like, let's write a song about what the 70s sounded like. And they call it <laughs> 70s scenario. And God damn it, if two minutes and 50 seconds into it, it doesn't sound. Oh, well, now it's getting a little discordant, but you know. Yeah. Quite, quite scenario. Man, a real 70s scenario. Real 70s scenario. Uh, so they finally have hits. Um, with their big hits came lots of money, but also money denial. So basically the way their finances work is that are if they... Me, are you telling me that this is a issue with the label? There's there's an issue with the label, man. I mean, it's not, it's not an issue yet. Uh, if they want something, they ask Tommy for the cash for it. If they want to buy a new car or they oh, want to so buy a house. this is like kind of the pre-issue point where they're like, we need some money to do this thing. And their manager's like, here's the money. And they're like, hey, how much money do we have left? And the manager's like, don't worry Don't worry about it. Literally. He said, we didn't ask to see anything. No records, no ledgers, no balance sheets, just cash on demand. Yes. This is a a pre-treble indicator. Yes. This is just like classic uh, label fuckery. So we'll talk a little bit later about what actually is happening to their money. But right now, it's like, it's all gravy. But right now, hit song. Hit songs and just like, hey, I want a bunch of money so I can go buy a pony or whatever. Um, in the meantime, as their star rises, John Oates gets into car racing, which starts with go kart racing. <laughs> Apparently, I didn't know this, but this is how you start as a car racer, as yeah. a professional auto racer. You start on the go kart track. Tommy Mottola bought him a go kart for Christmas, which like solidifies the bug. So he joins the Long Island Karting Association. He goes to racing school. Same, same. Um, and he says motor racing embraces a universal truth. When the green flag drops, the bullshit stops. (laughs) Words to live by. He's like super serious about car racing. He he loves car racing. He starts racing regionally through the sports sports car club of America. He wins a couple of amateur regional races, but he doesn't really have enough time to properly train because he's touring so often. So he kind of like fly on like a random day to like go drive in a race. His chart topping R&B singer career is getting in the way of his burgeoning (laughs) burgeoning, uh, professional racer. It's insane. So he actually then when he kind of levels up, he has a bad crash um, that takes him out of the amateur auto racing circuit for good. Um, He just makes the decision that like he can't be hollow notes and And drive. 
but he says that he arguably loves driving as much as he loves music. <laughs> so. <laughs> wow. Uh, anyway, you know, in a way, like those voices just reaching those high notes, it's just like the same as a car just accelerating when the green rooming, flag drops. Yeah. Rooming that old engine. He's got, a, he's got a need for speed. So we're what, like 76 now? Yeah, we're in like the mid, mid 70s. Uh, they have a couple albums without hits again, and then their venues shrink from arenas back to clubs. I do just want to take a stop on this because this is undoubtedly my favorite Hall Notes song. The song rules. And it like really bridges that like telling a story like capital S songwriting thing with being a huge pop hit. Yeah. And the production hits like when it drops here in a second. It's so good. God, that's good. That's a serious groove. I also love a good class conscious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, like almost this song is like in communication with like common people, maybe. You know, <laughs> you get strong. Whoa, you're a rich girl. <laughs> anyway, that album's called Bigger Than the Both of Us. Bigger Than I, the Both of which Us. Which I think really, you know, defines their sound and it sounds like their relationship with each other. Their this sounds. thing we got here, it's the Bigger Than the Both of Us. So yeah, they have a couple albums without any hits. Um, so, you know, Oates basically says like the they're weathering the the ups and downs and ebbs and flows of like pop hits, but they're always trying to record what they want to record. Which I do think that the music industry back in the day was a little more supportive of artist development in that way. Yes, you might let people have a couple weird albums, but you... well, it also helps that they're incredibly prolific. So they've gone. Yes, they've had an album since they got started. 72, 73, 74, 75, 76, 77, 78, they put out their first live album. Which he said was a mistake. He said everyone was putting out live albums after Frampton Comes Alive. And he's like, because they were desperately trying for a hit, like the label wanted a hit. And they're like, yeah, this is really bad. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And that was also like a way to get around album contracts and stuff because you were like contractually obligated to put together so many things, which is why all like greatest hits albums existed. So uh, like people put out a greatest hits album like every third album. (laughs) (laughs) It's the greatest. Also, that's very funny you say that it, this is about Frampton Comes Alive, uh, in response to Frampton Comes mm-hmm. Alive, because the cover of their album, their 1978 album, Live Time. Yeah. Time for some live music. It's live time. Live time, baby. Uh, like the color palette, the um, the photography style, everything about it is like exactly like, oh, do a Frampton Comes Alive. Just yeah. Like the, the t- the, oh, my God. Yeah. The sort of like soft focus, but like neon, neon lighting. lighting. Yeah. It's like they were it's like whoever was taking this picture was staring at the cover of Frampton Comes Alive to take this to create the album cover for this album. And you know what's so funny is just looking at the album cover because both of them look very dynamic and, uh, you know, into it. And also really cute. Hey, they're some cuties. They're, they're so cute. cute. Boys. And. John never says he never is like oh yeah you know the ladies loved us because we were just so like fucking hot but they were they had it going on they were like peak of their time for what they should look like in order to attract sexual attention uh, is there much talk of uh, of girls drugs and booze is that coming up it's coming up but I'll say this is that you know speaking of whole oats pretty <laughs> pretty wholesome boys unless he's trying to like. Just erase some past, which it sounds like maybe there was some debauchery, but he never had. This is an addiction-free 
Uh, it's an addiction-free memoir if we minus the the need for speed, the addiction to racing <laughs> and skiing. He loves skiing. We'll talk about that too. Uh, he he's a he's an adrenaline junkie, but he's not a junkie. So anyway, um, meanwhile, like disco is on the rise, hip hop is on the rise. That's something that they both are just kind of like. They appreciate, but I don't think super incorporate that into their sound. But then they they start recording some new material with some fresh ears. Their sound becomes edgy, taut, angular, and modern. <laughs> and this results in monster hits such as Kiss on My List uh, and You Make My Dreams. So real big time. The 80s have begun, basically. Yeah, you can hear it. Look, it's in that drum machine. Mm-hmm. Kiss on My List was recorded on a slower speed of tape to mm-hmm. save tape and money. It was essentially a demo, uh-huh. but they played it for their label, and they're like, this is monster. And so they just used the, the lower the quality demo. demo, which I think is really interesting. You can kind of hear that, like, tinniness, I think. Angular. Hot, angular, modern. It's true. They've sloughed yeah. off the excess of the 70s. Yeah, it's not as uh, saccharine or gooey. El- you know, Elton John ballady. I mean, expansive. Yeah. It's interesting listening to them backwards, like knowing their big 80s hits, because they do kind of sound like a new wave soul band first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going back and listening to their original songs, you 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 can hear that soul influence first. But also really hear how easy it will be for them to, to move into this. Yes. This zone. I don't know. These songs are fucking good, too. Hollow Notes. Good band. Hollow Notes. Um, so the 80s have truly begun. Mm-hmm. And with it, the 80s be- comes excess. Oates says he finds himself in a dichotomy. One man operating in an alternate universe of my own design where conventional codes of morality and even law itself seem not to apply. The other man seeking normalcy for brief moments amid the chaos. I don't know what he's referring to when he says uh, even law seem not to apply. In a realm beyond pleasure and pain. Like, it, it's a little sinister to me <laughs> that, like, he's. I think he's referring to some stuff that he's not willing to, to divulge. To divulge, because I think he is a wholesome boy and maybe he has done some wholesome, His, unwholesome, unwholesome things. things. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gets married at some point to a model named Nancy, but he says there was temptation around the corner and there was never enough to satisfy. Uh, describing his his lifestyle at the time. I don't recall actually using the kitchen in our apartment, except when a retinue of whacked out disco dolls would arrive to watch the sun come up while I whipped up espressos. I ate in amazing restaurants every night for at least 10 years. (laughs) Is is there a more 80s combination of sentences? Whipped up espressos for the disco dolls who come home to watch the sunrise. Also, it sounds like an amazing apartment. I think he's in uh, the Greenwich Village area, and he must be yeah, must have a great view. That sounds that sounds amazing. Yeah, whipped up espressos. <laughs> ah, the yuppie dream. <laughs> I love and eating in amazing restaurants every night. I don't know about you, but when I eat in restaurants for like you know, if I re- eat in a restaurant like twice in a day or like. Even twice two in two in days, yeah, I'm just yeah. like, Ooh, it's a I lot doing? of it's too much food. It's a lot of food. Yeah. <laughs> I need some like uh, uh, ancient grains, like, green. 
I just like to imagine John Oates like in, and he said like he's he's really immersed in like the New York uh, nightlife scene. He hangs out with Andy Warhol in the eighties. Um, he there's sure. a picture like he takes Polaroids of him all the time, and there's a picture of him in like the Auburn Al- like museum of John Oates in an Auburn sweatshirt that he didn't even know existed until a couple <laughs> years ago. Like this is the kind of life that John Oates leads, where it's like, oh, my picture's in a museum. I had no idea because I hung out with Andy Warhol like a few times. Amazing. Um, just debauchery and and chaos, and it sounds like he is like. You know, just a guy, just an Italian guy from New York trying yeah. to keep keep his head on straight, you know? Um, let's see. He wrote, oh yeah, in speaking of like the New York nightlife scene, he wrote Maneater, not about a woman, but about New York City. <laughs> in a way, New York is a character onto its own. It's uh, New York is the Maneater. Can we listen to Maneater? Of course. This might be my favorite Hollow Notes song. I only know the real, the real big hits. But like, this just this slaps, man. Can Molly? Can while we're listening to this, can you look up the album cover for Hollow Notes H two O, their nineteen eighty two album? Yes. <laughs> can you describe what you're seeing? I'm seeing it's a very tight close up of uh, Hollow Notes in profile staring at each other probably two inches away from each other's faces they're, leaning into each other they're sweaty their hair is big their hair is actually intertwined at the crowns of their heads um, where their pompadours seem to curl into each other uh, they're staring into each other's eyes Hall with his uh, just just beard with no mustache and Oates with some stubble and his luscious stash and uh, that's that's it it's a pretty intense picture. Good album cover. Yeah, I wonder who took this. They have a song called Italian Girls on this. Mm-hmm. Can we listen to Yeah, you want to hear a, a little cut of Italian Girls? Yeah, I do. Now, I feel like we're listening to a Billy Joel song. Mm. How does it The lyrics of this are I see all the monumental illumination. I see the greatest works of art in Western civilization. Ooh, but where are the Italian girls? So it sounds like they're in Rome and they're a little bored. Yes. Um <laughs> There's also lyrics about drinking too much wine and eating too much pasta. I'm so full and yet so lonely. <laughs> Same. That's how I feel and yes. I eat too much pasta too. Um, anyway, meanwhile, uh, Hollow Notes may have actually been the very first group to initiate the idea of having a company underwrite a tour. Okay. So, you know, this is years before, say, the Black Eyed Peas are sponsored by Pepsi. Uh, Carefree Gum and Canada Dry underwrite their, their like, early 80s tours. How, how wholesome. Gum and so, seltzer. Yeah, so, so, so wholesome. Um, 
MTV culture, and meanwhile, totally takes over. Music videos uh, start becoming a thing, and they have to become video stars as well as musicians. Um, and he says, this is where he actually begins the book. He's sitting inside a giant bass drum on a video set, um, and he's realizing he's with, along with Hall, like things have gotten too big. Are too you telling far. me that this book began in media res? Media res. They all, of course. Like, all the best. So basically things have just gotten too big, too fast, too commercial, too, you know, they, they've reached for a man the who heights. Loves, for a man who loves fast cars, his life has gotten too fast. Too fast, too furious. Um, so it's like things have just kind of gotten like to be too much, and I think they're looking for an out. Uh, they, so they sing on We Are the World, which is, I guess, like anyone who's a big star in the <laughs> yeah, 80s it was just did. Like who, who was in the studio that day? Mm. Uh, but. Oates recounts a moment when it seems like all the artists in the room are threatening to disrupt the recording process by like offering direction and suggestions. Uh, and then uh, Ray Charles yells, hey, y'all, shut up and listen to Michael and Lionel. It's their damn song. Just sing it. <laughs> I can just imagine Ray Charles just being like, fuck this. Like, I'm hungry. Can we go home? We got to get out of here. Like, just listen to Michael Jackson. So, uh, yeah, Holland Oates run We Are the World. Uh, can we play some We Are the World? Yeah, sure. I love We Are the World so much. I watched the, like, VHS of the recording process when I was a child many times. What is We Are the World trying to... S- is it for one thing? Ethiopian famine, I think. But it's if, USA for Africa. That's, that's the, the, that's the artist, charity. Yes. Um... Here comes the time. Sorry. <laughs> African famine. Did it solve it? Did uh, it do anything to help? Well, that's, that's the funny thing. I just feel like everyone thought that, yeah, it's famine in Ethiopia. Um, I think back then people thought that this was helpful. And maybe it was helpful for awareness. I honestly don't know how effective this was. It's hard to know. And I feel like it's something that people keep trying to recreate like songs for charity you know now even like Beyonce doing the uh, Miente for the hurricane in Houston it's a thing that people still have the impulse to do and it raises money but I I feel like the concert for blank is much better than the song for blank yes um I sang this at karaoke once too. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, then they play Live Aid. Um, They oh, things of Live Aid is like the culmination of their career, basically from the late sixties to mid eighties. Can I, uh, while we're on the subject of of this, have I ever played you? Do they know it's Halloween? No, please. All right, I'm gonna play a little bit of this. Let me just give you some context to this. Yeah. Do They Know It's Halloween is a charity record. Uh, it's inspired by Do They Know It's cr- Christmas. Yes. Um, it's from 2005, uh, put together by um, uh, uh, put together by Nick Diamonds of Islands. Okay. Uh, and the Unicorns. Yeah. Um, this is a record uh, that benefited UNICEF uh, that features... <laughs> ooh, boy. It's 2005 in Indie Land. It, fin- ooh, it, ooh. it features Wynn and Regine of Arcade Fire, Beck... 
David Cross. Yeah. Uh, Devandra Banhart. Elvira is on this. Feist. Uh, Sid Butler of La Savie Fave. Um, Great. Uh, Malcolm McLaren reads on it. Nardawar reads on it. Peaches is on it. Jenny Lewis. Uh, My girl. Rocky Erickson of the 13th Floor Elevators. Uh, so were they trying Thurston, to make... Thurston Moore, Stephen Merritt of the Magnetic Fields. Were they trying to make like a cool... Karen O sings on this. A cool charity single? Yes. It's bizarre. With this like four on the floor freaking yeah. beat, really. This song is actually great though. Do this in the um, in the the standard practice of getting everyone together in the studio on I the don't tiered think so. seating. Oh, because that that's when you know it's good. Yeah, wow, this is real really indie. Yes. Also, they spelled Halloween the the classical way. With Halloween. The apo- yes. Halloween. Yeah. Ha- Halloween. I used to trick or treat for UNICEF when I was a child. Did uh-huh. you? No, I did not. Oh. I only trick or treated for candy, like a real American boy. Anyway, they after Live Aid, they take a hiatus. Uh, and Oates hears from Tommy Mottola's lawyer, who is not Tommy Mottola's lawyer anymore, and <laughs> this lawyer says, you're broke. Of course. So basically what happened, I don't like fully understand it because my brain doesn't really understand numbers uh, as a concept, but they accepted cash advances from their label uh, instead of waiting for royalty payments. And uh, ended up in huge debt. Okay. So that's like the basic, uh, instead of, that's why the cash was flowing. Because, because they were, they Tommy Mottola would be like, why don't you just give us like a million five now? Mm-hmm. And then instead of like waiting and getting paid royalties like a normal So not person. only, it's not just that they weren't collecting the royalties, it's that they negotiated contracts that didn't have royalties. Yes. Basically. So they don't get paid for these their songs anymore? Well, we'll get into that. Oh my god. There's a there's a solution to this, but basically John Oates finds out he's like he he's been living in excess for half of the eighties. Uh, and he has like he all these cars, all these for houses. Nice dinners for a decade straight. A decade was going to whatever like Wolfgang Puck restaurants yes. or whatever. And he's like He, he got sushi comped. He got he got all those foods that you have to make in a ring mold that are like five <laughs> feet high. Um, all those foods that you so know, Bradys and Ellis, Bradys and Ellis made fun of in American Psycho. He he probably went to Dorcia multiple times. Oh man, it's hard to get in there. Unlike his song, I can't go for that. But do they have you know lobster lobster uh, thermidor thermidor? What is a lobster thermidor, Molly? Real warm lobster. <laughs> Just <laughs> that. Perfect warmness that you want in a lobster. Yep. Just that warm bite of, of bottom-eating lobster. Uh, sea bug. Mm, mm. Warm sea, bu- sea bug. Yum, yum. Anyway, John spends his days aggressively trying to sell everything so that I could generate enough cash. And more importantly, <laughs> rid myself of extraneous remnants of my soon-to-be former lifestyle. He even shaves he's, his... He's setting, shedding not only his possessions, but his soul. He even shaves his albatross noir, his famous <laughs> mustache. Um, he, he shaved his mustache when he was in Tokyo for like some kind of concert. And Miles Davis was there. And Miles Davis saw that he shaved it. And he was like, he basically made a comment of like, ooh. Like now, now the loving is going to be better. <laughs> As in, like I assume he his mustache would no longer, you know, bother bother women. And I was just like, oh, Miles Davis. Didn't we? Uh, is this not the second Tokyo anecdote that features Miles Davis? 
Is my, does Miles Davis live in Tokyo? I don't know, but didn't we do another episode in which Miles Davis? Not Niall Rogers, I think, yes. was in Tokyo, maybe and with Miles Davis. I think that he was there. He's maybe that's he just had like a, a little pied a tear in in Tokyo. Yeah, you know how it is. Yep. Uh, John Oates moves to Denver full time, and he <laughs> okay. gets back into skiing. So he shared an early anecdote where he went to Aspen on when he was in college, just like on a whim. And he, he skied in Pennsylvania, which doesn't seem like that's fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he loves skiing. And so he like moved to Denver to kind of like start over. He says, I could write a book about skiing. Maybe someday I will. <laughs> that was like a line break. It was like the only thing on the line. Like, maybe I'll write about skiing someday. I, like, I love to muse about potential future bo- books in my current book. It sounds like he could write about skiing. It sounds like he could write about uh, racing. Mm-hmm. He's got multiple interests. He's a well-rounded guy. What uh, approx- approximate year is this? This is the early 90s. This is like 1990, like maybe like by the 1990s. So I just want to in Denver. You can tell that uh, uh, that life is changing for Hollow Notes uh, from the title of their 1990 album, Change of Season. Yes. That includes a string of songs called Starting All Over Again, Sometimes a Mind Changes, and Change of the Season right in a row. Do you think that they were thinking about their li- uh, things going on in their life while they were writing this? I don't know. It sounds like maybe maybe they were having some, you know, transitional times. Also included on this album, Give It Up, parentheses, Old Habits. <laughs> <laughs> A little, a little on the nose, huh? Oh my god! Hey, they're they're the realists, though. You know, they're yes. just like they don't say anything that they don't. Sincerity and earnestness, man. Yes, is all, what Hall and Oates are all about. Um, <laughs> With bonus tracks, no more parentheses drugs and parentheses we're out of money. <laughs> I. I hate Tommy Matola. <laughs> he and you know what? To his credit, he doesn't ever slander Tommy Matola in this. Mm-hmm. He can't. But he he never is like that asshole Tommy Matola. Mm-hmm. He's always just like, eh, he kind of shot his shot. You know what yeah. I mean? Like he he saw an opportunity as a manager for a way to carve money yes. for himself and his artists. He vampired as much money out of the the hollow notes as possible and then yeah. took off. And he moved on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oates in Denver meets a lovely woman named Amy, uh, who has a pet fox okay, for great. some reason. Um, he marries her. It's a powder day on their wedding day. So he skis in the morning, gets married in the afternoon. Oh yeah. All very wholesome. They move into a farmhouse with like a bunch of chickens. They get a donkey. Um, the so farmhouse. Recreate those, the donkey baseball. Yeah. Someday <laughs> I'll fulfill my lot, my real dream of bringing donkey baseball to Denver. With rescue donkeys. Oh. You know, so rescue adorable. greyhounds used to race and rescue donkeys used to the play, ba- the play baseball. <laughs> Wes Anderson, get on this. Yes. Um, they Next door to their farmhouse is Hunter S. Thompson. At Owl Farm? They live yeah, next to Owl Farm? they live next to Owl Farm. Um, wow. Hunter S. Thompson's car is parked on his property when they move in. <laughs> when Oates calls to politely ask him to move the car before they start, like, working on the, like, cottage <laughs> thompson says the car likes it there <laughs> the, car, the car likes it there <laughs> yeah so uh so he's he's transitioning into into family life right <laughs> yeah he's transitioning from world renowned uh pop singer to uh aspen recluse mm-hmm. so, I, re- I respect the hell out of that though i think that's he really zagged on him Mm-hmm. By doing that, um, and, I and again, cool. you you could kind of track their their uh, 
position as a as an entity from going from uh, 1990 uh, being their one of their last like uh, f- the last in their run of albums, yeah. their album, and then 93 live at the Apollo, 21 2001 greatest hits live. Yes. Uh, 2003, live in Dublin. They're like, all right, how can we turn what we are into money? Yes, like just legacy. Um, mm-hmm. I think the live at the Apollo, they brought um, the Temptations to play with them. Uh-huh. They've like always had a thing for the Temptations. Yeah, the Temptones. The temp the Temptotions. The Temptotions. The Temptotions. Um. Anyway, so he's like he's married. He's kind of he's he's con- he's Marie Kondoed his life basically, right? Sure. He's, he's, he's living removed. a much more minimalistic life because yes. he had to because he didn't have any money. Sure. Um, and it sounds like help. he literally had enough stuff that he has enough money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the detail that he's just liquidating things he has. Car, you know, cars, Pontiac, whatever's, uh, like race cars, houses, all kinds of shit. Uh, they have a son. Uh, they have a baby boy who they bring on tour whenever they gig. So it sounds like him and Daryl gig sporadically through the 90s in order to kind of keep the furnaces on. Keep the the coffers uh, uh, not bare. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, they homeschool their son. And his son, at the age of 15, he builds one of the world's smallest inertial electrostatic confinement nuclear fusion reactors. Oh, my God. Yeah, they gave birth to a freaking genius. That's amazing. He, I think he ended up going to MIT or something, um, and now he maybe works for the government and hopefully will have a part in keeping stuff from not happening with North Korea, happening with North Korea. He's like David Hahn, the Boy Scout who built the nuclear generator in his backyard. Yeah, sure. His name is Tanner. Tanner Oates. Um, good job. I just feel like John Oates is so... Um, He's like kind of crunchy and organic in that like he just all he wanted to do is play music. There wasn't really any other option for him. Like he graduated, barely graduated college. And then he just started doing the music thing. And like then he gives birth to this tiny scientist. It must be really confusing. Anyway. uh, And then, you know, the the book kind of like fizzles out in terms of pacing. But uh Oates starts getting invited to Hunter S. Thompson's Kentucky Derby parties. Sure. And his Monday Night Football viewings. Sure. Um, because Hunter S. Thompson loved Monday Night Football yep. and he, no one was allowed to talk during the game. They could talk during commercial breaks, but not during the game itself and tell everyone <laughs> to shut up. Um, I, I can very easily ima- imagine Hunter Thompson uh, as a guy who, for living like a, a complete anarchist uh, in his professional life, in his uh, retirement on his own farm, yes. to be uh, very into rules. Very, yeah, very into rules, but also like chaos, but chaos that he designs and yeah. um, administrates. Did you ever read about Johnny Depp hanging out with him uh, to uh, when he was studying the role? No. no. There, I, the one anecdote I remember is... Uh, Hunter Thompson handing Johnny Depp a little uh, like cardboard package and a roll of tape and a propane tank and being like, here, tape this, tape this to that tank. And Johnny Depp is like taping the the propane tank to it. And he's like, uh, hey, what's um what's in this cardboard box? And Hunter's like, oh, yeah, that's nitroglycerin. <laughs> Johnny Depp uh, obviously becoming very uh, paranoid about it and taking they them just taking this nitroglycerin propane bomb out to the range and then shooting at it with a revolver. Great, 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 great. Um, sounds about right. Yeah, he it said he liked to blow the shit out of typewriters with a high powered handgun from close range. What's so strange about that? Yep. <laughs> 
Um, but uh, Hunter S. Thompson kills himself in 2005. Oates is present at the le- now sort of like recently legendary funeral uh, where the, or I guess funeral slash celebration party where Hunter S. Thompson's ashes are shot out of a 153-foot cannon. Yep. Did you know that that cannon is taller than the Statue of Liberty? The statue, not the base, but the statue? No. Yeah. The cannon that they shot Hunter Thompson's ashes out of? With the, you know, the Gonzo lo- uh, like logo on it and everything? It Here's the thing about it, this cannon, though. It uh it points straight up. I kind of assumed that it would have an arc to it, but it is no, just, it's like, just, a tube. It's an obelisk, kind yes. of. Yeah. Um. Yeah, he said he found it. He found it sad. Football season's over. Um, meanwhile, to wrap things up, uh, Oates' debt to his uh, to Atlantic was resolved when a cabal of lawyers, including New York at the time, New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, uh, discovered that labels had been stashing unpaid royalties and collecting interest on those royalties for years. So it wasn't just Hall and Oates; it was you know Bob Dylan and whoever else. Uh, so they successfully litigate against this and Oates gets paid, you know, his debt is wiped and he gets paid you know, hundreds of for, thousands, millions for like of all the music that he's made for like 30 years, for all the hits that he's, he's created. Yeah. Well, I guess. Thank you, Elliot Spitzer. Yeah. Thanks. Elliot Spitzer. <laughs> Making sure Hollow Notes got paid. Yep. He did something right. Um, and then he, Oates ends the book. He says, there's always that creep of doubt. There's always a chance to turn back. When you see the light at the end of the tunnel, remember, you're still in the fucking tunnel. That's my mantra. <laughs> it stokes the furnace inside and pushes me onward. Really, the only thing I really knew about these guys is um, <clears throat> that they came out of like the Philly soul scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the impressive thing about them is just hearing both of them being right on top of the musical zeitgeist for 20 straight years. Yeah, they, they were never like especially ahead or behind. No, they were just they were rated. just on it. Yeah, exactly. Which is impressive. Look, consistency is impressive. Putting out an album a year for almost for like 15 straight years uh-huh. and like seven of them, seven of those being monster hit albums. That's a good that's a good record. Yeah. It seems like he has a good relationship with Daryl. Also that's a good, I mean, it's bigger than the two of them, right? Also, here's something that I didn't know or understand. Um, are you familiar with the TV show Live from Daryl's House? Uh, no. Yeah, Daryl Hall has had a TV show for like nine years. Um, and it's a, I think it started online and now it's, then it became on TV. But I'm pretty sure it shows after SNL sometimes. Oh, really? And it's just like Hall jamming with whomever. Oh, so it's like a little night music. Sure. Wow, he did this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 82 episodes, uh, including Cheap Trick in May 5th, 2016. He's still doing it. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's the first year since last year he hasn't done it. Um, but, you know, good on you for, for doing that. It reminds mm-hmm. me of um, S- Sunday Night. Uh, a show that uh, saxophonist David Sanborn hosted. Okay. Uh, that was produced, uh, I believe, by Lorne Michaels by Broadway Video. That was like a uh, a a comparison between um or, or a, a after programming for Saturday Night Live. Yeah, maybe Sometimes that's what I'm thinking. Michelob of. presents night music <laughs> that I mostly know because it has some of the wildest episode uh, lineups 
of all time. Like, for example, um, in the uh, second season of this show, you could have watched a show in which the Red Hot Chili Peppers play with Nick Cave and uh, Toots from Toots in the Mayhall, Mayhalls. You could have watched an episode in which uh, Sonic Youth played with the Indigo Girls. <laughs> you could have watched an episode in which Conway Twitty played with The Residents. And the Pixies jammed with Sun Ra. <laughs> it's a very uh, wild show. That sounds amazing. Yes. Oh, and, uh, an anecdote. Well, that's great. An anecdote that I'd like to share to, to truly close things out is that um, Travi McCoy from Gym Class Heroes has uh, Hall and Oates' faces tattooed on his hands. Oh, I mean, gross. But that's not, on, that's not a, a knock on Hall and Oates. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, also, I feel like just, like, getting someone's face tattooed on you is, like, a big deal. Mm-hmm. But getting someone's face tattooed on your hands, where you see their ha- you see their faces every day, all the time, every time you do things with your hands. That's crazy. That's insane. Bad decision. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think bringing up the question, does this guy deserve to have a memoir beyond just being in wildly popular band hollow notes? I think he does. Yeah. Yeah. What did you learn uh, uh, in a greater sense from the memoir? I just I learned that you know, there's you can always look at yourself and wonder what is really in my life that I need to to get rid of to let go of. What am I hold? What kind of baggage am I holding on to that I don't need to hold on? To? So the big turn here, you think, was the minimizing aspect of it. I you. kind of. I think he. Yeah, he. It was you know the '70s were like. Loosey goosey, free, not too like commercial, mm-hmm. and then the eighties were excessive and over magic, the top. Baggage. And then he just had to start over. He had to strip away everything that wasn't John Oates. Yeah, just yeah. only just whole, holy oats. And so let us leave you with that aphorism: strip away everything that is not John Oates from your life. From your life, uh, remove it all and get back to your soulful basics. And Google Google Travi McCoy Hall and Oates hand tattoos because it's. Freaking atrocious. Yes. Uh, always down for Googling some bad tattoos. You make my dreams a nightmare. <laughs> and while you're on the internet, you can go ahead and follow us at and intro pod mm-hmm. or send us an email at andintroducingpod at gmail.com. Our SoundCloud is, as always, at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod. And please subscribe <laughs> to us on iTunes. Please. And while you're there, you should. Uh, I could really go. For you rating and reviewing us oh, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I think we got another review on the iTunes page, so we're what? moving up. Was into, it pause? Yeah, it was. It was a good review. Whoever that was. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but we'll be back in two more weeks with another tale of music history. Uh, but until then, we'll see you next time on And Introducing. Ate your plums, all those plums in the icebox. So delicious, had to eat them.